Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome Joel Dudley, partner at Innovation Endeavors, to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Sarah Nishat. Let's kick things off, Joel. We'd love if you could share a brief introduction with us. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me here. I'm a fan of the podcast. A brief introduction is that my current role is I'm a partner currently at Innovation Endeavors, a venture capital fund started by Drew Berman and, and Eric Schmidt. Um, my background, I, I guess it's always interesting when you ask what people sort of call themselves when they describe themselves like, and how they order things. But I guess in, I, I think about myself, a scientist first, and I guess an in, in, in entrepreneur second. I have a background in, in academic research. I was a professor at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York for a while, but then jumped into industry and, and started a few of my companies, more, companies of my own more recently. Terrific. And maybe to help connect those dots for us, if you will. What's been your North Star throughout your career? What's been kind of that guiding principle for you? Yeah, I would say my North Star is I am an optimistic contrarian <laughs> by nature. I, you know, I always think everything's possible and that humans are amazing and, and can come up with solutions to pretty much any problem. But I'm also contrarian in that I guess I see is an obstacle to that is, is sort of dogma, right? And entrenched hypotheses and beliefs. So I think I've always been focused on challenging those things. Specific examples, when I was an academic researcher, one of the things I really focused on is looking at cross disease molecular biology with the sort of the assumption that, hey, I think the way we think about disease is just wrong. You know, we have this big symptoms and anatomy-based view of, of disease, and I don't, I'm not sure that actually reflects <laughs> what's going on underneath the hood, so to speak, at the molecular level. So um, I was in the lab of a gentleman named Atul Butte, one of the grad student at Stanford, and, and we sort of embarked on this journey to, to leverage a lot of the molecular data that was being generated by um, microarrays and sequencing to sort of challenge that assumption and, and map disease out from a molecular level and sort of throw away all the preconceptions of what it, you know, how diseases are sort of encoded. And um, I've done a ton of work in that area and sort of challenged some notions about how we identify, both identify and name and sort of characterize diseases and, and also really interested in sort of the system of humans, the human diseases. I'm, I'm very interested in systems and how everything's connected. So I guess I've been sort of anti-reductionist in that way and very much focusing on, hey, how is everything connected? Everything from sort of systems biology level, how do we integrate? How do we not just focus on DNA, but how do we integrate methylation, proteomics, like how do we always find the bigger picture, the bigger system underlying everything and understand that, that system. And I guess that's sort of what always drove me and, and briefly uh, worked in various disease areas and such as Alzheimer's and sort of threw out all the dogmas there and just started looking at the data and following the data and went down a path around identifying, there's a New York Times article about the work we did here in the past, uncovering a viral immune sort of factors underlying Alzheimer's, which was very unpopular <laughs> with a lot of the folks at the NIH that funded this type of research, or at least the folks that had been, been funded by the NIH in that space. So I guess I was taking sort of joy and <laughs> pride in taking on sort of dogmas in, in scientific realms. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing. And one question that we love to ask our guests as we kick off episodes here comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical mm -hmm. engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. Um, he shares with us the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean to you, Joel? Yeah, I guess the, because I'm a systems thinking type person, I, I totally agree with that. But then I, my mind goes immediately to, we can't predict it, but um, you know, how do we architect the system and create the right uh, conditions? You know, a lot, a lot of scientific breakthroughs and technical breakthroughs are the results of, of second order effects, right? Um, things you can't predict. Maybe a more lay example is you know, all the AI work that we're doing in, in biology and medicine really been enabled by GPUs, right? But GPU innovation was really driven by video games, right? 
And if it hadn't been the demand on GPU innovation coming from the gaming world, then we wouldn't be doing what we're doing with AlphaFold and things like that today. So you can't really be prescriptive about how these innovations are going to unfold when you're inventing the future. So I think and I think this, this is what really drew me to innovation endeavors is really thinking about how you create ecosystems and systems that optimize <laughs> for more of the second order effects that you're looking for, you know, and you can't be overly prescriptive about what those second order effects are, but you can sort of create the necessary preconditions that increase probability <laughs> that those desirable sort of second order effects, you know, kind of emerge from the system. So I think that's where my mind goes when I hear that type of question. I'll pass it off now to Sarah to guide us through our, our first topic here, translational medicine. Thanks, Joel, for those mm-hmm. wonderful intros. The, the GPU anecdote um, and creating ecosystems are very interesting. Yeah. Um, we'd love to dive deeper and kind of discuss your journey. So you studied sure. microbiology and biomedical mm-hmm. informatics through undergrad and grad school before becoming yeah. an associate professor for genetics and genomic sciences. I'd love to start right there. So why biomedicine and informatics? What first brought you to the intersection of tech and bio? Yeah, no, it, it's always been natural to me, uh, even though I was, you know, at the time when I was doing that type of work, it, these were fairly nascent, or, or going into grad school, these were fairly nascent fields. And I, I had always been interested in biology. Um, strangely enough, I have, my mom has this paper, I guess I wrote, not really a paper, uh, a one pager I wrote when I was in sixth grade about careers where I said, and I had totally forgotten about, by the way, that I said I was going to be a geneticist <laughs> when I was in sixth grade or fifth grade or something like that. Oh, wow. and I totally, totally forgot about that. My mom had pulled it out after I had basically gotten my PhD. And so I'd always clearly been interested in, in human biology as sort of the well, sort of ultimate challenge and the ultimate sort of machine to decode. But at the same time, I've always been interested in uh, computer science. I had actually programmed computers I taught myself how to program computers when I was young and when, you know, I'm 46 years old now. So that means our computers were pretty uh, <laughs> prehistoric at the time. I think my first computer was an Atari 800 XL, I believe was the model number. And we actually had a, the, the storage was a tape drive. So I had always bounced back and forth between my interest in computers and biology and even paid for my undergrad by being a IT consultant working on computer networks and eventually became a software engineer. So I always held these these two interests sort of simultaneously in my head. So when I saw biomedical informatics degree opportunity, it, you know, I was naturally very strongly attracted to it because it, it really brought my two two passions together. Um, and then it was becoming apparent with high throughput technologies like microarrays and and sequencing platforms that you know biology was a bit late to this compared to other sciences like astronomy, say where they're able to collect you know, huge amounts of data through telescopes. That biology was going to shift more towards being in um, data-rich science and that necessarily you would need to be able to implement algorithms and and statistical models in in order to do biology. So that always seemed apparent to me. So it was natural for me to do that. And I've always been interested in health and more translational and applied problems. I did work in evolutionary biology for a while, which was super fun and interesting to me because there's the famous quote, which I'll butcher if I try to remember it, but how, you know, everything in and biology you know, only makes sense through the lens of evolution. And hopefully we can, uh, <laughs> look, I, I'm even failing to remember who, who said that quote, very famous evolutionary biologist. But so that was actually sort of a helpful foundation of evolutionary biology and comparative genomics. But you know, I've always been interested in, in translational applications and in human health. And I don't know if it's because I have a more of an engineering mindset, perhaps that even though I'm a scientist, I'm always looking how do you engineer solutions um, you know, in the forms of drugs or algorithms that are applied in the clinic versus just being sort of a, uh, you know, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but a basic scientist, a much more applied scientist. And in medicine, you know, it means being translational in my, in my mind. Yeah, those are, those are very great points. From there, mm-hmm. you co-founded Longevity Health mm-hmm. and New Medi, focusing on artificial intelligence platforms for preventative health and drug discovery. Yeah. What lessons did you learn from starting your own companies that you may use still today? Well, NuMedi, I, I founded right out of grad school. We were applying machine learning uh, and huge amounts of data to drug discovery. And I sort of laugh. I, I think the best lesson I learned from NuMedi is, you know, timing is everything in terms of timing startup and, and the market. And I, I, we sort of chuckle, I, I think, you know, when I talk to some of the folks uh, that I started that company with is we were just basically about eight to t- eight years too early, I would say, in starting a 
AI-based drug discovery startup, there was just a tremendous amount of skepticism <laughs> around using computational methods in, in drug discovery among pharma and biopharma. And, you know, we were just too early. We, we could probably could have taken that same pitch deck that we just struggled to raise, you know, a few million dollars with and had raised, say, a year ago or two years ago and had just, you know, been overwhelmed probably with term sheets <laughs> using the same deck, deck and same approach. So I definitely uh, learned at NuMedi that, you know, so certain sometimes you can actually be be too early, and uh, how to, how maybe you can recognize that. We failed to recognize it in that case, and and adjust the company. Um, what I learned so longevity was started much later. That was sort of born out of my personal interest around pre prevention. So I had been doing lots of work in precision medicine. You know, precision medicine applied to cancer using diagnostics data predictive algorithms to study Alzheimer's, study cancer. And it was great and exciting to me, but what becomes sort of obvious uh, if, you, if you study sort of healthcare and healthcare economics that you know, prevention is, is important. And what's striking to me was that we, were in, we had all these sophisticated tools and methods being applied to the study of, of late stage disease, frankly, or you know, frank and emergent emerged disease. And we were really, nobody was really applying the same exact methods to understanding prevention and, and what is a healthy state and how do we model these health to disease uh, transitions. And in fact, you know, when I talk, talked to earlier about challenging the notion about what is disease and the earlier work I did with Dr. Butte, it was then in that stage challenging, well, what is health, right? So if you really think about it, even to this day, we define health as the absence of things we describe as diseases. Okay. If you think really hard about that, health is the absence of a set of concepts that we have constructed to describe uh, disease states. And that's a pretty poor definition of health, right? Because of course, if, what we do now, because some folks like uh, Mike Snyder at Stanford and um, Lee Hood and, and Institute for Systems Biology have done some pretty interesting studies of healthy populations and even some folks at the Weizmann Institute uh, as well in Israel, is that, of course, there's an unbelievable amount of variability, biological variability, uh, population variability, individual variability over time in, you know, those healthy individuals and those healthy processes, yet we sort of consider those as just like a single, very coarse-grained concept. So um, I was sort of going insane and feeling like a crazy person because as I started to talk to folks at the NIH, started to talk to folks and even academic research, nobody seemed interested in this question. It's, you know, what is health and how do we define it in a much more sophisticated way so that we can, you know, better understand, model, and predict these transitions to disease. Um, and once I realized that, um, you know, NIH wasn't going to fund <laughs> any work in this area, that pharma wasn't going to fund any work in this area because there's nothing really about the pharma business model that gets it interested in that question that, well, I have to start a company and I have to find a way to create the science and the evidence and, um, you know, the sort of sustainable business around interrogating, you know, and defining what is health, but then also coming around up with solutions for prevention and that starting a company was the only way to solve that problem. So I guess what I learned from <laughs> longevity is if you think it a, oh, a problem is really important and it's possible that you're the only one that sees and understands, you know, how important that problem is given your set of expertise and experience and that you can't just sit around and wait for someone else to solve it, right? I couldn't, you know, I could go scream at NIH until I'm blue in the face that they should fund research and prevention and, and health, understanding of, of health uh, prior to disease, but, you know, that wasn't going to accomplish anything that I had to go start a company to, to solve that problem. That was going to be the only way to, to move the needle, in my opinion. And, and uh, so I think that's the sort of the startup lesson there. <laughs> you know, if you, if you have a burning question, a burning problem that you think needs to be solved, just, you know, start a company. Yeah. Wow. Redefining health. That's, that's yeah. very cool, Joel. <laughs> yeah. You uh, also served as the chief scientific officer at Tempest Labs before joining Innovation Endeavors, yes. where you're at now. Mm -hmm. How has your time at Tempest kind of shaped the way you think about precision medicine, artificial intelligence, and healthcare? Yeah, Tempest is, 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 a, is a great experience. Um, a really interesting company. I think one of the most interesting companies in precision medicine today. And there's more going on at Tempest than anyone knows because obviously it's a, it's a private company uh, still. But what it interested me in Tempest at the time I was approached for the at Tempest, I was actually a fully tenured professor <laughs> at Mount Sinai. I'd gotten tenure early. I had a ton of NH funding. And I'm not trying to brag here, but things were going well is the point. 
And then I, I sort of just quit on the, on the spot. And um, because what, when I, once I got tenure, I realized that, um, you know, the rest of my life was going to be basically cranking out PDFs and not having the impact I wanted on, you know, changing how medicine is practiced um, from that academic perch because, you know, there are just fundamental differences between um, the incentive structures underlying academia and industry. And this is one of the things I used to tell academics as they transitioned in Tempest was you have to understand that underlying academic research, uh, this is important for any founder that wants to transition out of academia into startup world or, or industry, is that the economy underlying academia is a credit and prestige based economy, right? So the sort of the coin of the realm is getting credit sort of for your research through authorship and basically building prestige. You know, I wish it was another way, but really credit and prestige is, is the economy underlying uh, academic uh, research and academic medicine. And it sort of incentivizes a lot of the bad behaviors that you see <laughs> in those worlds. Um, whereas um, startups operate on an execution and results based economy, right? So, so practically what's different, right? So like in, with those two incentive structures is, well, one, if you're say an academic that's transitioned into a startup, in the academic world, you're sort of incentivized to keep your best ideas close to the vest and not share them with anybody because you don't want to get quote unquote scooped by one your, for one of your great ideas that could, for example, turn into a paper or a grant. So you're sort of incentivized to be cagey and keep things close to the vest. Whereas in, in a startup, if, what you'd want to do as a scientist, for example, is you'd want to give all your best ideas away as much as possible <laughs> to the people who can execute them on them fastest inside the company, right? Because it's really execution and results. And then if you have equity, you're sort of rewarded uh, when, they, when the company does well. But it's actually hard you know, for people to make that transition culturally if they've been sort of marinating in the academic uh, world for, for too long. But my, my personal interest in that was one is actually having a bigger effect and more directly on, on changing healthcare, but also for me, for my sort of toolkit of skills and abilities was how to learn how to hyperscale or how companies are hyperscaled. Um, so you can, I've started some companies, they stay small. Most people, companies either often, you know, before you start a company, it's more likely they're going to stay small or go out of business, right? And it's because most companies don't succeed and, and companies that survive don't always you know, scale uh, massively. And I hadn't really been part of a company that hyperscaled. So I was curious, could I get out of academia? Could I be a full-time operator? Which I had never really been a full-time operator in, in the sense of just being everything being on the line every hour of the day. <laughs> in academia, you know, you operate in spurts and then it's a pretty cushy gig. So, but in, in a startup, your neck is really on the line every hour of every day in terms of having to deliver um, and produce measurable results. Um, and then, so Tempest was about 300 people um, when I joined it and when I was you know, chief scientific officer and it was about 2000 people when I left. And that, was, that happened in about three years. So about from 300 people to 2000 people in, 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 uh, and just going from you know, small amounts of data to huge amounts of data, you know, and just a uh, small number of connections to health systems, massive number of connections. And at every different level of Tempest, you know, we went, we got to thousand people to completely different company. When we get to 2000 people to completely different company. So for me personally, which I think is, the skill set now I can carry forward into helping the companies and in innovation endeavors is, you know, like how does what how do you have to think about things when you really start to achieve sort of hyperscale? And it, it's quite a bit different experience. It's sort of about than than just running a small company. It's sort of like reading about jumping out of an airplane from a book and actually jumping out of an airplane are very different experiences, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. Could you could you describe that transition from Tempest to venture capital now at Innovation Endeavors and maybe a few key takeaways? Yeah, well, uh, I think the one thing I liked about I actually didn't know I'd be good if I'd be good <laughs> as an operator, frankly, because in academia you're not like a like I mentioned a full time operator, you know. And I, I feel like I, I did did well and learned how to do that well. And I hope to be able to you know obviously pass that knowledge on to the, the companies that we fund and innovation endeavors. And what attracted me to innovation endeavors was more of this, you know, hands-on approach. I got to know the innovation endeavors team, you know, slowly over time, over many years and increased my engagement with them. And that led up to this full-time position, but I did get a glimpse into the culture at innovation endeavors. And it is uh, more of a involved model for venture capital where they perhaps place a small number of bets, but the bets they place, they get deeply involved in in a hands-on way and sort of 
uh, you know, operate to whatever degree inside the company and you know, mentor people and, and get hands-on and really helping the company. And I think that was extremely attractive to me. I just didn't want to be someone who wrote checks, <laughs> um, you know, and, and moved on to the next company. I wanted to use this, this deep set of experience I had um, gained over time and to really help people avoid making the same mistakes <laughs> that I made at Innovation Endeavors. Um, you know, one of the things we always say is help make sure you help people make original mistakes, right? So <laughs> you don't want to have people repeat mistakes that have been made by others. You want them to make original mistakes uh, uh, only uh, when they make mistakes. So th that was attractive to me. And that, that's, um, and, and funny enough, I, be, from being an academic, I actually missed the mentorship, <laughs> um, for, for those that have done academic research and have mentored PhD students, it's, there's a rewarding aspect of that mentorship relationship that really is for life. Uh, and that, you know, when you mentor PhD students, they go out into the world, they're in some ways like your kids. And then when you see news about them doing well, it's sort of like, you know, seeing news about your own kids <laughs> doing well. And, and it's a rewarding uh, experience, you know, to know that you maybe had a hand in, in helping, you know, quote unquote, raise that person in their, in their career. And, and even better, hopefully they can exceed, you know, whatever you accomplished um, when you were a professor or, or in a startup. And that, that'd be, that's the best possible outcome. So I did miss that mentorship. Um, experience you get being a professor and in and, and being a, a venture capitalist and the innovation endeavors model, I saw that opportunity again to get back to mentoring small uh, uh, scientific teams. So that's, that's personally re rewarding for me, but also to take all this, this set of experiences I have, both scientific and operational, and you know, sort of help increase the probability of success for those startups. Definitely exciting to hear your background and, and your experience and excited to see where you go in the future as well. I'd love yeah. to now transition the, the conversation to discuss engineering the future of precision health, or like you've said, mm -hmm. redefining health. Yeah. And so for years now, you've been at the cutting edge of computational genomics and healthcare. How do you mm -hmm. think about engineering the future of genetic medicine and genomics as a whole? Yeah, it's, this is a super interesting world. I think, you know, the other reason I wanted to jump into innovation endeavors is I, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, I think it's probably one of the most exciting times in human history <laughs> to be literally to be working at the convergence of, you know, technology and, and, and biology and compute and data. It's like, I think it's going to be an inflection point, like literally there's never been seen before in, in human history. And so specifically, that means a, a couple interesting things to me. So one, I, I think one of the underappreciated aspects of precision medicine in companies like Tempest, for example. So, so Tempest is, is you know, sequencing an unbelievable number of cancer patients, building up a huge data set of clinical and molecular data. And that when companies like Tempest or Color Genomics or other companies are successful uh, in collecting this huge amount of data that lets us redefine disease, what we're going to find is that actually the number of diseases is going to explode, right? So um, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, right, we have this very coarse grained sort of um, symptoms and anatomy based view of disease, right? You know, this is, this is a heart disease because it sort of happens to the heart and, you know, there's just type one and type two diabetes, you know, there's only two types of diabetes. Well, that's sort of ridiculous. Now, when you start looking at the emerging, you know, genetic data on diabetes, type two diabetes, and I actually published a paper on this in science translational medicine. You know, type 2 diabetes itself is probably a whole constellation of subtypes of uh, this sort of diabetic, emergent diabetic uh, pathology. So what's going to happen with these, in, these initial efforts in precision medicine in the diagnostics world and, and sort of data aggregators like uh, Tempest and Color and others is that the number of diseases is not fixed. The number of diseases, in fact, going to explode, right? So, you know, maybe the the extreme conclusion of this is every you know disease is an N of one eventually, but on the, the path there, the whole number of disease. So, so if you're a drug discovery company or have a drug discovery technology, it's not like there's this fixed number of diseases and we're going to discover all the drugs that fix these diseases and we're going to be done. <laughs> it's in fact the indication space is going to explode because that is the logical consequence of precision medicine, right? So we'll have you know types one through 20 diabetes or types one through 50 diabetes. Uh, for example, and each one of those types will perhaps need its own um, therapeutic that's targeted uh, either molecularly or otherwise at that, at that subtype. So, so that's exciting because what it means is, yeah, of course, we need to keep um, increasing innovation on the therapeutic side and, and our ability to rapidly engineer th therapeutics and, tar and target therapeutics towards more 
well-defined or even complexly defined molecular subtypes. So, so I think that's um, super interesting. I also think a lot of the um, therapeutic technologies are going to become more and more commoditized as we see sort of engineering systems applied to mRNA, for example, like, you know, Oligos, companies like Twist Biosciences and others, like it's just going to be sort of turnkey and commoditized to start generating not only like mRNA therapeutics and, and uh, things like that, but even probably more complicated therapeutics, potentially like cell therapies and others. And then the, the challenge then will shift to, well, we can basically target everything, but given a molecular target, but there's still big remaining challenges in getting those therapies to the right uh, tissue in the right cell. Because with uh, molecular sensing technologies, you know, now we're getting down to, to cellular resolution, right? So um, we need to know specifically in what cellular context um, does this drug need to operate, right? So a classic example would be in the tumor microenvironment. It's just not about targeting a tumor cell in a dish with a given um, you know, mutation, like a KRAS mutation. It's having that mutation and being in the context of certain cancer-associated fibroblasts or certain cancer stem cells. So you may see these hyper-targeted therapeutics that actually, you know, we sort of call this um, you know, executable therapeutics um, you know, internally, and other people have used that before, where the drugs themselves, you know, not only can like hit these molecular targets in very sophisticated ways, but they're able to get into the right part of the body where they need to act. And they're able to sense, you know, that they're in the right compartment, for example, in the right immune compartment of a, a tumor or a microenvironment, and then only execute a therapeutic program, say, for example, you know, you connect two cells, an immune cell and a cancer cell together with like an antibody, but only in, in the exact right biological context. So, um, so I guess the sort of the, as I zoom way back out, it's, you know, with, with, with increasing levels of resolution, both around the definition of diseases and the, the process of disease within the body, you know, we just are going to have to get into this world where we need um, hyper, hyper targeted and context aware, you know, therapies. And you've, you've mentioned that therapy targeting is one of the challenges of precision medicine, but as we bring these new approaches forward, what else do you think will be a challenge? Well, I think the two things I'm really obsessed with right now, I just talked about the you know, delivery there, but I think even, even another huge challenge that I think very few people are working on, which is surprising to me, is you know, when, you, when, you, when we talk about solving drug, drug discovery with you know, biology or technology, a lot of people tend to focus on, oh, can we, so for example, search through the antibody space to find uh, antibodies that have better affinity for a particular target or a hard-to-target drug. And, and that's, that's an important exercise for sure. But when you're talking about solving drug discovery, you're not just talking about solving the sort of, um, you know, drug ligand <laughs> or drug target or, um, you know, protein therapeutic or antibody target interaction. You want to solve drug discovery end to end, meaning um, you, you want to find ways to, you know, lower the cost of drug discovery and accelerate drug discovery across the whole, um, you know, from early stage R&D to clinical trials to getting into the market to post-market surveillance. So one of the areas I'm really excited about that I don't see too many companies uh, really focusing on, uh, you know, quote unquote tech bio companies focusing on is how do you increase the probability of translational success, right? So we have all these great tools now, generative AI algorithms for engineering proteins, et cetera, for a given target. But these, if you sort of follow the path of drug discovery, these all end up running into these um, bottlenecks of, so for example, um, using mouse models. Right and bad mouse models to as proxies for translation uh, in, in humans. Right, so while our ability to generate uh, therapeutic molecules has has dramatically improved, our ability to determine whether those are going to be efficacious <laughs> in a given indication in humans in the real world in the clinic has not really um, been improved all that much. Right, and so you, so what you're going to sort of you can sort of visualize it is we're going to have this huge pileup of you know, innovative new molecules entering into the drug discovery pipeline, just sort of being uh, choke, having a choke point of these very archaic and, and translational models, bad animal models, bad cell models, overly simplistic models that don't take into account the true complexity of the human body, right? That are just single cells in a dish and are not looking at multicellular context, that are not looking at whole body in vivo context. Um, so I think to me, that's one of the, the sort of final frontiers in many ways of of this um, sort of tech-enabled or AI-enabled drug discovery path. It's like, okay, well, I think we got the therapeutics part down and the engineering part down pretty well, for example, for cell therapies. But 
you know, we still have this massive problem of how do you increase probability of translational success? And you can think of all manner of potential solutions to that problem. That could include building better, more complex um, uh, models, right? So um, organoid systems, more complicated organoid systems that are a bit more representative of what's actually happening in humans in the clinic. It can mean doing things like uh, uh, Tempest is doing, for example, of collecting more real-world data on patient populations and 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 deep molecular data uh, on those populations of how patients actually um, are how that disease is actually sort of unfolding in the clinic to even you know purely computational approaches, right? You can imagine people taking that type of data and for example, building more complicated digital twin type systems, right? So there's probably a generation of AI enabled companies that will take deep molecular, multimodal molecular and clinical data and then generate um, you know, really actually accurate and reliable digital twin you know, type technology that's able to simulate complex human biology and probably work in tandem with more complicated preclinical systems like organoid systems, et cetera. But, but to me, you know, it's, it's hard to get excited, super excited about where innovations in biology and technology are driving drug discovery until we really get serious about solving this translational bottleneck. Absolutely. Keeping those translational success and the, and the final frontier concepts in mind, can you share a bit more about the Innovation Endeavors investment theses and, and why you were drawn to it? Yeah, well, you know, there's sort of the high-level uh, thesis of, of Innovation Endeavors, which has been you know, written about in, in blog posts and others about sort of this, this super evolution model, right, that you have this convergence of sensing technologies, you know, molecular sensing technologies, imaging-based sensing technologies, et cetera, um, with um, the ability to generate huge amounts of data and the ability to apply algorithms at scale, either in large cloud-based systems or edge-based compute systems where you're bringing compute closer to uh, the problem. And that, that's going to enable these you know, sort of rapid learning and rapid iteration cycles you know, at scale that will lead to you know, what's been branded by innovation endeavors as the uh, this, this super evolution. Um, and we have good examples of this in our portfolio. I think Icon Therapeutics is a really compelling example where Icon Therapeutics is a it's a therapeutic discovery company that's using super resolution microscopy where they can do basically single particle tracking of, of proteins and basically film movies of proteins moving around in cells in real time. So generating huge amounts of imaging data at super, you know, sensing that molecular and proteomics world in ways that has never been really ever recorded or, or visualized before. And then applying, you know, algorithms on that imaging data, AI-based, machine learning-based algorithms to support a next generation of therapeutic discovery. So, so, so that's sort of the, the high-level thesis on the firm, and that can be applied to multiple domains, specifically in life sciences. I've, I've only been at Innovation Endeavors about a month and a half now. So we have established a thesis in the space and it's continuing to improve it. And of course, you know, we plan on sharing that uh, more broadly, but there are a couple things we could talk about here. One is we're interested in systems that really embrace uh, the complexity of human biology. Biology has had this problem, in my opinion, for a long time that it always tends to get really reductionist, right? So to understand a, a complex system, let's you know isolate a single cell in a dish and try to understand what's happening to that cell in a dish in a, in a hyper-oxygenated environment where it's maybe it could be in a, in a hypoxic environment in the body or, or something like that but that you're taking a single cell out of the context of all the complex biology that's happening in, in the context specific biology that's happening inside the body. So you know, we're interested broadly in, in tech bio or life science um, technologies that really embrace the full complexity of, of human biology. So studying you know, um, multicellular systems or having the ability to perturb biology so that we can understand all of these context dependent aspects of human of human biology. So specifically, I like for a good example is like interleukins. There's a whole set of interleukins in the human body that are both pro-inflammatory and or anti-inflammatory depending on the biological context, right? So you can't say like an IL-22 is a, only an anti-inflammatory molecule because it can actually be pro-inflammatory given the right uh, you know, cellular context. So how do we build these high throughput systems that can either perturb uh, biology through like broad CRISPR screens, and then maybe read it out through high throughput single cell methods and really uh, perturb you know, the genome under a large number of contexts to really reveal this context specific biology that's really hard to see uh, when you sort of study things in steady state or in you know, sort of single, in, out, out of the context of, 
a multicellular um, animal is one example of a, of a thesis area we're, we're very interested in. Yeah, that's great. And so building off of that next generation comment that you made, Innovation Endeavors mm -hmm. focuses on investing and supporting companies leading the super evolution. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the super evolution and how engineering fits? Yeah, well, I think, and I hope I don't butcher this, the super evolution theme here for, for us, but I mentioned it a bit earlier, you know, looking at the convergence of our ability to sense and observe systems, you know, molecular profiling technologies through chemistry, imaging-based technologies, uh, other ways to sense the world and uh, measure it, our, and having our ability to also perturb things at scale in the life sciences, like I mentioned through CRISPR or shRNA screens or chemical uh, DNA, uh, you know, uh, libraries, um, DNA encoded chemicals, et cetera. Um, and then to basically enable, but then to wrap those in an engineering system that allows you to, you know, sort of rapidly interrogate and iterate um, and learning. Because I, I think it sort of gets to the earlier point <laughs> I made about systems. And we talked about the quote about inventing the future is that you don't, you, you can't be sort of overly prescriptive and you can't uh, really know anything. Um, but what you, 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 what you want to be able to do is rapid, is create systems for rapid learning. Uh, in, in an area or an application area, right? And I think that's where engineering comes in. So for example, in, in life sciences, a lot of things are still quite manual, right? So there's organoid platforms or organ chip platforms that a human being still has to like pick up with their hand and take a pipette <laughs> and, you know, put in media and put in drugs or, and of course we have automation in, in the life sciences, but even with automation, you know, there's still, if you would look at a, at a, at a, bio, a life sciences lab um, that's even doing high throughput experiments, you know, there's a lot of manual work of pulling plates off of things, extracting um, RNA or DNA from uh, a tissue or cells, moving it over to the sequencers. So there, there are engineering problems that need to be solved to really create these sort of closed loop learning systems. Uh, in the life sciences, and I'd say despite all the automation we have in the life sciences of robotics, et cetera, we, I think we have a long ways to go, not only to, to create truly closed loop learning systems that don't require human intervention, but then to also, how, how do we sort of distribute those more broadly, right? Move from a central lab model, you know, where uh, UCSF or a Baylor or WashU is able to invest in big central labs that are able to do this type of work. Obviously, how do you then engineer it? those closed loop learning systems to be smaller, more accessible, uh, bring them in, you know, to labs and bench tops, et cetera. And then that, you know, will really unlock more iteration cycles and more rapid learning uh, around a problem. I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. The, the closed yeah. loop learning systems is not something that I had heard of before. So that's, that's very interesting. Building off of that, how does Innovation Endeavors uniquely support their portfolio companies? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, one thing that's really unique about innovation endeavors is if you look at sort of the partners, you have people that one have real hands-on experience in building companies, um, you know, which is super important and that our founders, you know, so um, I think that's just always you know, more helpful when you have, we have a bunch of people on our side that have been there, done that, been in the trenches, understand, you know, what founders are going through. Uh, obviously not the only firm that does that, but I think that's deeply embedded in, in how we support uh, companies. And then it's, it's really um, a team effort at IE is the one team, one dream phrase. We really operate as, as a team and have an incentive structure to work as an entire team to support all companies across the portfolio. So even though I'm leading, for example, life sciences work, it doesn't mean I can't hop over to an agriculture startup of ours because maybe I happen to have experience in an algorithm they're using or, or even further outside my area of expertise. So it is really a team-based approach to supporting the whole portfolio, which I like, you know, we're not incentivized to be sort of individuals building our own uh, brand or our own portfolio or competing. And then we, you know, we, we do get hands-on, you know, we do spend a lot of time with our companies and helping them troubleshoot tech, deep technical and scientific problems, right? It's not just um, helping them solve, you know, should they incorporate in Delaware or, you know, should they use uh, you know, this tool or that tool for managing their cap table, it's really, you know, hey, you have this hard engineering problem. Either we have the expertise on our team to help you solve it, or we've built this broad network of expertise where we can bring in, you know, whoever might be the best in the world in our network that solved that problem before. Um, and to me, that's, uh, you know, one of my favorite things about this innovation endeavors uh, model is to 
help increase probability of success by you know, getting deeply involved and you know, bringing expertise to the table in addition to just funding. Joel, I'd, I'd love to ask you one more question, mm -hmm. more of an advice question. Sure. You've had a prolific career in translational science and academia, industry, and now investment. Do you have any advice for early stage startups or for academics interested in entrepreneurship? Yeah, well, I'll take the latter one if you don't mind, academics interested in entrepreneurship. I think what's really interesting, even though I sort of talked in the beginning about how academia and industry have sort of fundamentally different underlying incentive models, but there are many things that you learn as an academic that are super valuable and translate extremely well to the startup world. So for example, as an academic, you are used to just constant barrage of rejection, right? So your grants, you know, some depending on where you're applying, right? Grant, grant success rates are something like sub, you know, 10%, sub 5% in, in certain areas, right? So you're always, you're used to just writing these, these, these grants, uh, you know, trying to articulate these great ideas that you want to work on and just being rejected nonstop over and over again. And everybody telling you that, you know, your idea is bad. Same with papers. You write papers that you think you've got a great paper and you send it around to journals and it's this constant, constant rejection. And that's great because most academic scientists, as a result, have really thick skin. And if they believe in something, they really got to persevere through that constant rejection and really convince people that, you know, their study uh, is something that is worthwhile or that their grant is something that's worthwhile. So that's great, obviously, in the, in the startup world, because you also have to deal with a huge amount of rejection with, um, you know, investors not, not understanding your idea that you think is great um, uh, and rejecting your, uh, you know, funding your company. And you just got to persevere through that and, and find a way and, and, you know, power through that constant rejection until you can find an opening to sort of prove the, the value. And I think it's even you know, perhaps be better and easier in a startup to, to sort of show that your idea has merit because you can, you know, have more objective ways of demonstrating that through partnerships or funding or revenue. Whereas in the academic world, it can be a bit more subjective. Uh, in terms of how you how you demonstrate that, so I think um, you know founders don't really, uh, I'm sorry, academics don't realize that that sort of thick skin they build up would serve them well in the startup world. And the other thing you have to do to be a, a successful academic is you have to be persuasive <laughs> and tell a great story about the science you're working on to fund to donors to grant administrators at the NIH the science itself is not good enough, you know? So everybody likes to believe that, oh, if my science is, is great, it'll be so self-evident that everybody <laughs> will want to fund me. But that's, you know, not the case at all because humans are on the, on the other end of funding research, right? And humans are primate, are, are narrative-driven primates, right? So stories are powerful. I used to have this thing in my, I used to tell my students, relationships are greater than stories are greater than facts, meaning, from a persuasion perspective, our personal relationships persuade us the most, right? If someone we know and trust in our or our close social network says something, and we you know we're more likely to be persuaded by it than someone we don't know. Similarly, stories are more persuasive than facts. Like raw facts on their own are not very persuasive. We see this all the time in, in public health, right? That facts on their own are not persuasive. You actually have to wrap facts <laughs> into a narrative and a story. Um, to get people to really understand them and be compelled and to be persuaded by, by uh, evidence. So I, I think if you're successful in academia, you actually learn that because you have to wrap your science in a, in a wonderful and a great narrative to get <laughs> funders excited. And that translates of course, very well into the startup world, right? Where um, you can't just have a great, you know, uh, business per se uh, on its own from an sort of empirical or logical or rational standpoint, you have to tell a great story. Uh, about that business to get people excited about it. Uh, and then to be able to raise the money, then to be able to execute on that business, which you think has great fundamental aspects of being a business, but it won't always be apparent to other people when you show that to them. And, and it's really on the founder or the scientist here to, to wrap that in a, in a great narrative and a great story to get people excited. Now, of course that can go wrong <laughs> when people take that too far, but it, it's, it's extremely important and translates very well from the academic world into the startup world. Yeah. Wow. Relationships are greater than stories or greater than facts, correct? Yes. Facts are among that's, the least persuasive on their, um, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Naked facts yeah, are very, very unpersuasive. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, before we come to a close, um, want to kind of run through a few rapid fire questions to cap things sure. off, and I'll pass to Chaz. Yeah, I'll try to keep my answer short. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Joel. A few running questions here that we always love to close our episodes with and ask our guests. We've talked a lot about the future that awaits us today, but with that in mind, there's also some challenges we obviously, of course, have to wade through to get there. Yep. Uh, what would you describe as the grand challenges facing life sciences for us, if you could, over the next 30 years? Yeah, I think the grand challenges are regulatory challenges <laughs> with every with every space that's moving really quickly. You know, how does re- regulation keep up with um, innovation, right? So you see this for, specifically, for example, uh, if you look at the FDA and uh, what are the endpoints they're using to approve a drug to, on the marketplace, you know, the t- we have technologies that would probably make that that process better more rational more effective it's just you know and the fda is doing some really interesting work in synthetic control arms and using real world data is to try to innovate in that space but you know just making sure that the regulatory landscape keeps up with the innovation and um also you know it's sort of an easy it's always easy to pick on on regulation (laughs) as an obstacle to innovation but i'll also say within um, science is, which I talked about before, is dogmatism. There's an unbelievable amount of dogmatism in, in science. Like people would be shocked. <laughs> you know, if you sat, as I have at an NIH, and this isn't really to pick on the NIH, it's really to pick on scientists themselves. If you sat in a study section panel, so study sections are the ones who review grants, there is an unbelievable amount of dogmatism in uh, science that prevents new you know, methods and new hypotheses uh, uh, from emerging. Uh, a great example is beta amyloid and Alzheimer's disease, right? Which has been in the news, you know, with the failure of the Biogen drug um, uh, that targeted beta amyloid, but then papers coming out or news coming out recently that, um, you know, maybe there is some falsified data around <laughs> beta amyloid initially, but there was an unbelievable amount of dogmatism that kept beta amyloid, you know, the sort of the focus of Alzheimer's disease uh, research and, and drug discovery, you know, despite mounting evidence, uh, you know, to the contrary. So uh, I, I think so, as scientists ourselves, we have to always be on the lookout, um, you know, for, for dogmatism and lots of different realms of d- disease and, and biology from sort of preventing us from getting to the next uh, level of understanding. So with these challenges in mind, hopefully over the, the next 30 years here, we, we address these and the landscape changes itself. Uh, can you describe the state of life sciences in 2050, if that's not too far out for you, where will we be? Yeah, well, I think in the state of life sciences in 2050, my, if I were to guess, um, you know, it's going to be really, one would have to imagine as I do, if I, if I really believe that we're hitting this sort of exponential phase of innovation and in, in uh, life sciences capabilities that we will make significant headway on the majority, you know, vast majority of the diseases um, that contribute to morbidity and mortality. And that perhaps, um, perhaps we'll shifted to uh, making strides in longevity though by 2050, you know, I maybe temper my expectations on how much we can extend human lifespan, but what I do, what I can see happening is um, enhancement. Uh, you know, if I put my sort of sci-fi hat on, is you know, once we've sort of solved disease, so to speak, and and I'm sure there'll be some diseases that will be <laughs> resistant to being solved uh, even in, in, until 2050 that we'll have to to focus on. But I, my guess is that a lot of these tools and technologies will be start to be applied for uh, human enhancement, right? Uh, even like putting artificial organs <laughs> inside people that are not natural at all are not making up for uh, um, a deficit like an artificial pancreas, but even something that's adding uh, capabilities, like screening hormones for improving performance or uh, releasing uh, chemicals that eat up acid aldehyde so that when you drink alcohol, you know, you don't have a hangover or whatever, right? And these are sort of uh, uh, pretty tongue in cheek examples here, but uh, I would have to imagine that we're going to start to harness this for improving human capabilities beyond, you know, what we've evolved up until this point. And Joel, it's been a fantastic episode here. Uh, Maybe to help us wrap a bow around your thoughts, uh, any closing remarks you'd like to share with our audience today? 
Well, I would say, boy, we're, we are just getting started. You know, it might seem like if you, if, you're, if you listen to this podcast or other podcasts that like, oh, well, well AlphaFold has solved proteins. So and not, to, not to diminish AlphaFold, but so you know, I'm not going to work in, in you know, the modeling of protein space or something like that. It's, we are so, what's so true with biology and medicine is like the, every time we, we get more data, we learn something new. It's like the more we know, the less we know. I mean, it's unbelievable how complex you know, you know, humans are complex adaptive systems. The whole is always greater than the sum of the parts. You can't understand the whole system by looking at its parts. And we're just so far from being able to model even very basic things uh, about human biology. Um, so we're just getting started. So it's it's never too late to get into this space. Even lots of unsolved problems. AlphaFold is a great example. AlphaFold can't model um, intrinsically disordered proteins. Intrinsically disordered proteins are some of the most important sort of flexible domains uh, in biology, right? RNA binding proteins and other proteins have, have evolved these very uh, loosey-goosey, squishy <laughs> parts of their of the proteins called intrinsically disordered uh, regions, and, and AlphaFold can't model those at all. And they may be they may be the most important protein domains in in understanding human biology. So we're we're, we're just getting started, and and there's plenty of green space, greenfield opportunity here for anyone who wants to get involved. And as we talk about, Joel, uh, these amazing topics that we've uh, gone through today in, in your incredible journey, um, how can our listeners learn more about your work? Yeah, so I, I think we'll, we'll be put, we've put out some content, innovation endeavors. As we've invested in companies like Think Biosciences or Character Bio and others, we've, we've sort of talked, you know, we've laid out why we're excited about those companies and how they fit into our thesis and how we're thinking about problems in the areas that you know, these, these folks are solving. Um, so I think, you know, that's useful to browse that content. Um, there'll be more content forthcoming from, from us. We're going to start hosting more events <laughs> around the country. Of course, my academic research is, is all available online, but I wouldn't, you know, recommend anyone read that because it's really boring, but, uh, you know, really focus on where we're, where we're headed now. So hopefully we'll have more content coming out. Everybody's always welcome to reach out to me <laughs> at Innovation Endeavors, J Dudley, J-D-U-D-L-E-Y at innovationendeavors.com. Uh, I'm happy to talk to anybody about what we're doing there. Thanks, Joel, for a terrific episode today. We're very grateful for the time and looking forward to having you back on the show soon here. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.